0: angelus domini nun sia vit marie
1: e con sempre del spirito santo
0: ave maria gratia plena dominus tecum benedicta tu in
2: Hello and welcome to Radio Maria. You are listening to the Liturgical Looking Glass, a program that looks ahead at the Church's liturgy. Today I am joined by Nick Swarbrick. The two of us will be presenting this program for this season. Good morning, Nick
3: morning tim how are you doing
2: very good it's lovely to have you here and to be starting this brand new program on radio maria and i i think that you're just as excited as i am
3: excited and trepidatious It's the first time i've done anything like this
2: well me too in fact and um yeah so it's um i've had rather a a crazy morning trying to to get um to this point i was cycling against a headwind and fall off my bike and so I'm, I'm feeling a bit flustered but I'm gathering my wits and and ready to go
3: I'm sorry you fell off your bike i I feel guilty I've come all the way from the kitchen into the front room to do this so uh, it's not been a not been a problem for me but are you okay
2: i'm I'm all right yes uh, there was a helpful man who who offered to bring me to my feet um and my bike seems all right so Excellent. I, I once heard a piano tuner saying um skin can grow back but um other, other inanimate things can't. So, oh,
3: well, that's true. That's true.
2: Um, so my bike's okay. Anyways, let's let's uh talk about um. Well, perhaps before we start, I was wondering if if we could bring begin with a prayer. Um, sure. Sure. and if you wouldn't mind,
3: just, the prayer that we used to say at the start of every assembly at my school. Um, but I've, I've, in the sort of 50 years since I, since I said it in a school context, I think I've grown beyond that. But here it is. It's one of the collects to the Holy Spirit, which occurs in the liturgy anyway. So I think it's very appropriate. O oh God, who did instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation. For Christ our Lord.
2: Amen. Amen, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, this is the Liturgical Looking Glass, and um, the idea of this program is that we're going to be looking at the liturgy of the week ahead and bringing out little gems and um, unforgotten treasures, as well as things that people would have known already, but maybe not known some of the history behind it or the meaning behind it. And um, just a little bit about the two of us, myself, Tim Hutchinson, who works here at Radio Maria. Um, I grew up in a sort of non-liturgical expression of um, Christianity, but became Catholic about 11 years ago and became very interested and in, um, in all things liturgical. And I've also spent four years in um, Cistercian Monastery, where I was just sort of a sponge for Gregorian chant and um, learning what... Uh, different parts of the mass wear and things like that as well as being a musician and so sort of very interested in where prayer and music come together and um and nick who's more of the expert among us i'm going to let him introduce himself
3: okay thanks um uh, all of a sudden it seems very chilly in here when you say more of an expert more of an expert perhaps but this isn't my area of academic interest so much i'm a part-time uh, re- part retired Um, education lecturer at Oxford Brookes University where I specialise in children's literature and outdoor learning. But uh, when I first started out as a postgraduate researcher I was looking really at the the links between prayer, liturgy and music on the eve of the Reformation. For me those three things don't really disentangle very easily because um, prayer is one of those things that for me is very often best expressed through the medium of music. I I think of it sometimes as Prayer is the boat, and music is is the stream that I'm floating along on. So very often I I use music in my prayer, or I appreciate music when I hear it in the liturgy, and that's really where where I've come to with this. We'll talk about. I suppose this is the point at which we do discuss how we met. Yes. Do it, or shall I say, where we what what bizarre circumstances got us together?
2: Well, I'll begin. Um, uh... I'm not sure if we've made this clear, but I'm broadcasting from Cambridge and you're broadcasting from the other place, from, from <laughs> Oxford. And uh, I used to go, I was there before I moved here and um, I used to go to the oratory and sing in the choir at the at the um, what they call the family mass on a Sunday morning. And um, one Sunday morning I came out of mass and was in desperate need of a coffee because I'm very much quite, um, a bit rushed in the mornings and i probably came to to mess with that one so i popped into a little coffee shop um around the corner and was sitting at one of these uh these benches that are right up against the glass where you sort of sharing with people and kind of elbowing the the people next to you and um you had a very interesting book that that uh, sparked my interest and it was that big blue cts uh Daily missile.
3: Ah, yes, of course. It was the daily missile. I was thinking it was the Graduale Triplex, but you're right. It was the daily missile because I'd been singing the psalm that morning at Blackfriars Family Mass, which is, uh, if you like, almost equidistant from the coffee shop. So we we met down on, on um, a territory between the two, really, didn't we?
2: That's right. Yeah, and and that little, if, if for those who don't know Oxford, that little area is um, friends of mine call it the the Catholic Mile. Because there are just so many different places to hear Mass um, on St. Giles Street. If you start perhaps with, um, it's not St. Giles Street, but it it, it makes a, a straight line from um, Holy Rood all the way up to uh, St. Gregory the Great. Yes, and you've absolutely. got Blackfriars, you've got St. Bennett's, you've got the Catholic Chaplaincy, you've got the Oratory. Um, so there we were, we met on the Catholic Mile and <laughs> um, began talking about liturgy and... About setting psalm tones to, was um, it setting psalms to to tones for, for the mass and things like that. And um, yeah, I I didn't realize that a a radio show uh, program would come out of this, but here we are.
3: Um, yeah, that that's basically it, isn't it? We just sat and talked and talked and talked, mm. um, and it was it was that was a great morning. But then we've had similar mornings since, and from it has grow has grown the liturgical looking looking glass. Um, the, the, here we are today.
2: Shall we talk a little bit about why we've called it the, the liturgical looking glass?
3: Yeah. Okay. This we 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 thought of lots and lots of different ways of looking at it. As someone who lives in Oxford, I have mentioned the name of the place. Now there we go. Um, uh, lived in Oxford for quite some time. The notion of the looking glass world or the or the Wonderland world is one that is is. is er, everywhere in in the tourist literature of Oxford. But we wanted to go beyond that kind of merely making this about um, Oxford and Cambridge and things like that to to talk about what the liturgy does. There are complex ideas about culture, about ourselves, that really are reflected in the liturgy. And also the other way on. We are reflected when we look at the liturgy. And this gave us the idea of looking at ourselves or looking at the liturgy and looking through the liturgy to something bigger more numinous and more wonderful really yes
2: and i think this this idea of reflection is really lovely because we have this idea that all these spiritual mysteries that we will one day see in um reality we see them as reflections now so there's that um now through a glass dimly or a a mirror dimly that that scripture i think it's yes. from corinthians um and to think of the, the liturgy as a sort of reflective surface or a looking glass through which we see deeper mysteries, I think is a is a lovely way of, of um of seeing it. Although this is a radio show, so you'll be hearing. Um I think the liturgical sounding board is a little bit had different connotations, so we I didn't go in that direction.
3: Well, I can't remember who it was who said that they liked listening to the to the wireless as it was at the time. Uh, they liked listening to the radio because the pictures were better, and I think <laughs> that um, maybe you know people will have will bring their own images, which I think is also a powerful way of listening.
2: I, I like that very much. Um, all right, and uh, and also this is obviously not limited just to sounds, although we will focus on that. There's also um, you know gestures and vestments and. Um, different prayers and things like that, that we want to uncover and present to um, the faithful and to enhance their appreciation for what's coming up in the liturgy. So let's speak about what is coming up in the liturgy. Um, well,
3: it's a good time for us to start this, isn't it? Because what we're looking at now is we're looking at uh, a change of season this next week, and we'll be looking at that during today's programme, but also that will reflect what happens, what we discuss uh, during the rest of the season of Lent.
2: Yes. And um, so one of the biggest changes, we might say, that um, is this Sunday we're going to be hearing for the very last time in a, in a while the um, Gloria. And um, maybe... Nick, you can explain to us why that is, Why? is. Let's talk a little bit about the Gloria and the significance of this piece, first of all.
3: Well, the Gloria is that great hymn, um, that great Christological hymn, that hymn to Jesus, that to some extent marks the beginning of the liturgy. We have the, the introductory rite, the penitential rite, and then the priest, usually, unless a cantor is doing it um, for some reason, the priest, Turns to the people and sings "Glory to God in the highest," and everybody joins in. It's one of those moments that has has phrases in it that that almost always give me a sense of goosebumps. And that first turn to you know "Glory to God in the highest," I think is a wonderful way of of setting the tone of why we are in church. We have done our prayers of access which is what they get called in some of the ancient liturgies and then we begin with the meat and potatoes if you like of, of the liturgy you know the the hymn to christ and i just love it for that reason now the reason that it's not there in uh, lent is kind of twofold i think that people often think it's not there because we're being more serious And uh, we want to get rid of that joyful aspect. I think we'll come on to joy in a little bit, won't we? So Mm. I'm gonna shelve that one to one side and say that one of the reasons why the Gloria is not said during Lent is that Lent has become a kind of repository for older practices in the liturgy. And the Gloria was one of those pieces that really, really way back was only sung on very particular occasions. We've broadened it out to use it, so priests use it. We, um, w- w- rather than just when bishops are present, we have all sorts of things going on like that. And I think the people really needed that that kick to start the liturgy. Mm-hmm. I like the, sh- the shape of the liturgy with the Gloria in it, but it not being there does make you think we are part of a longer tradition of how we worship, what we do, and it brings a certain solemnity, almost the gap. Could be a silence, if you like, becomes that point at which we turn straight from our prayers of penitence, our prayers of sorrow, our prayers of access into uh, the the liturgy to the thematic prayer, the collect after it. And it therefore brings the collect to the fore, that prayer that comes after it comes to the fore. But the Gloria is heard for the last time, um, apart from major, major feasts Mm -hmm. um, uh, from now on. Tim, have you got a Gloria that you'd like to share do,
2: with us? I do, yes. So we're going to sing. We're going to sing. <laughs> You're welcome <laughs> to sing along. We're going to play a, a, a Gloria, an English one, um, we decided, based on the uh, fi- number 15 from the Roman Gradual. Um, wow. And um, yes, let's let's stop talking and just go straight to it and then we can discuss it a little bit more. But here we go.
0: Amen. Mm-hmm.
1: Jesus.
2: That was the Gloria sung in English, and one of the things I love about that, before um, you weigh in, Nick, is okay. the way that um, it's sung by the cantor and the people, which I think I, I don't know why more congregations don't do that. I think it's a, a just a lovely way of kind of breaking up the um, the chant so that you get this call and response, which is so easy to do, and it generally Kind of encourages the people to sing more, in my experience.
3: Yes, I think when we uh, when we come back to uh, a series, uh, a season when we could think about the Gloria more, we might want to look at some performances of the Gloria because I think it becomes a very, a very much a performative piece here because you've got the cantor and the congregation. I think you have a time to pause each time. You know, as the person that would be that cantor at the at the nine thirty at Blackfriars. Uh, It becomes that sense of just a little bit clearer. You can keep your pitch more easily because somebody else is is taking over from you. You don't get that slide that you get with some some, uh, groups or congregations if they haven't got an organ with them. But it's that sense, again, of being able to listen as well as join in, which is really at the heart of a lot of Western liturgy, if you think about it. It's there in the Psalms. It's there in those... Lots of those responses where the priest says something and you say them back, there's lots of dialogue going on. This makes this a dialogue hymn, and I think it works very well. Call and response is actually what we've got here in in a very ancient form.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: But, I mean, we're getting getting to the point where the Gloria will not be sung. We're also getting to the point where there's another word that we don't say. That's right. Um, I I have described this to Tim in the past um, uh, as... That time we're now in that time that I think about, uh, about as the liturgical pancake day. There used to be a point where the Alleluia was not sung earlier in the penitential season, uh, so before Ash Wednesday, but now Ash Wednesday marks that point where the Alleluia is not sung apart from on very specific occasions. And um, I often think that this Sunday is a chance to to have as many Alleluias as possible, which mirrors what used to happen in the English version of of the liturgy. Excuse me, <coughs> the English version of the liturgy, where they had an Alleluiatic Sunday. They had a Sunday where everything had as many Alleluias. Really,
2: a word? And,
3: yeah, no, I made that one <laughs> up. I must admit. But um, you know, we've got that sense here of. Just as in the same way as a pank of pancakes are meant to get rid of you know, animal fats and eggs and milk and things like that from your diet, mm-hmm. uh, which is not the way we have uh, these things these days, but that's the older practice. Here we could see this next Sunday as a Sunday to you know get rid of all our allelujahs to mm-hmm. get them out of our system for a little while. But again, we come back to this whole notion in Lent of aus- austerity. And uh, a penitential quality of Lent. It's uh, one of the, the rubrics is that we shouldn't have extra music from uh, the instruments that we have. So it's not a time to have a voluntary for some reason. It's a time for a little bit more yeah. quiet, for more reflection. Austerity doesn't necessarily mean for me a, a, a denial. It means a looking at something else. You, you were talking about having a cup of coffee, and. Those bits of silence, those bits of austerity always feel to me like that ice cold water that you have with a really nice strong coffee. Mm. (laughs) You need the ice cold water, that clear water, just to help you savour what you have at other times. And so we've got this liturgical pancake day on Sunday, where certainly in the music that I've got organised for our our congregation, we'll be finishing with Alleluia, Sing to Jesus. I think it's probably a way to go.
2: I think there's also something wonderful about having words that are good and beautiful which you decide to refrain from using at certain times because um, often we can be puritanical and say, you know, there's certain words that we cut out of our vocabulary that are bad, um, which is a wonderful thing to do. But then to have certain words that you cut out of your vocabulary because they're too too holy or they're not appropriate for a certain season, it puts you in a um, certain frame of mind. And one of the things you and I have decided that we're, we're going to try and do is we're trying not to say hallelujah during the season of of um, Lent on this uh, program at all. So we, we need to get it out as much as possible today um, yes. so that we don't do it then. And I'm sure you have some funny stories of, of hallelujahs slipping in in Lent at, at times when they weren't supposed to. But well, um, one... Yeah, you go, go, go for it.
3: Well, one of the ones that... that often catches me out and i know it's caught other people out is that we've got that wonderful hymn let all mortal flesh keep silence resolutely in d minor kind of sonorous piece and everyone thinks oh this is great this is just what we need for lent except it catches you in the last line alleluia alleluia Hallelujah," that the angels are crying and <laughs> at that point you can see it coming you know someone has it during lent and you're thinking no 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 what are we going to do and of course you can't do anything there it is in the text yes um i did once here in a workshop rather than a liturgical space, so it's not quite as awful as it sounds, of somebody just taking uh, an ordinary set of hymns and getting people to hum or whistle, not, as I said, as a liturgical practice, but the idea was just to let people see how often we use these words. And if we use them very often, does that mean we don't actually appreciate them? Mm. Uh, Alleluia, as as, uh, Thomas Merton wrote at one point, is a song of the desert and I'll come back to that perhaps at some point, uh, possibly when we're out of Lent and we're not actually thinking uh, of how we're going to get around not using it during the program. Yes. But Tim, you, your your monastic formation gives us a, a very interesting side to, side to this about the joyfulness of Lent. And I think yes. you, you um, are
2: too. Yeah. So apart from the fact that you don't have any alleluias during Lent and some communities are so strict that when they are practicing for the Easter liturgy they won't even um, say the Alleluia's in the um, in the sanctuary, which I think is such a beautiful, or inquire rather, which I think is such a beautiful thing to do. Um, and also they will have um, parts of the liturgy where Alleluia is an antiphon, but they will have something else there with the same syllables that they, so if you are visiting the community as I once was doing um, on the Isle of Wight. Suddenly, this Alleluia comes up, and everybody says, "Praise the Lord or something like that and you you're completely caught off guard, which is um rather funny but um <laughs> yes, I wanted to speak a little bit about joy, and um I'm gonna give a quote from the Rule of Saint Benedict on um Lent, so let's see here I've got it here if I just make it a bit larger um so this is from the rule of saint Benedict chapter forty nine and it says, "During these days, therefore, we will add to the usual measure of our service something by way of private prayer or abstinence, from food or drink, so that each of us will have something above the assigned measure to offer to God with his own will, and then with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, let each deny himself some food, drink, sleep, nevertheless taking. Um, Sorry, talking and idle jesting and look forward to the Holy Easter with joy. And um, I was told that I think this is the only place in the rule of St. Benedict where the word joy is used. And it's used twice. And it's to describe Lent and the the anticipation that we have in the Holy Spirit, um, that joyful longing for uh for easter and i must say that i do find lent an incredibly joyful season it it, it's not the same kind of exuberant hallelujah joy but it, it does have this kind of smoldering uh austere joy which is um it's probably also the first season that i really felt like i began to understand what the liturgy was doing and um and experience this deep joy but that's something we can perhaps talk about at another stage because um, I'd love for us to get on to some music again so shall yeah. we talk about some some Lenten hymns
3: yeah absolutely Um I mean, for for anyone that hasn't quite got what we're doing this morning we're wanting to mix music discussion of liturgy and actual presentation of some music so i thought we'd start if if that's all right i mean with this what we planned but with the Attende domine which is a hymn that um i recognized from a, a while back and in fact the first time i ever saw it was at the back of my dad's old missile and i thought what's this about i didn't even know that there was music to it um it doesn't actually formally appear in the liturgy. It's not a place that we we there's not a place that we'd normally put it, but I've known it be used um, as a substitute hymn in um, uh, for for vespers during during Lent. It's a responsorial uh hymn, if you like, almost in the same form as a, as a proper carol, so it's got a chorus to it, but I suspect that probably means that it's a, um, it's a processional hymn originally. I've checked out on the internet, and there's an interesting bit here, where lots of people say that its origin is from the Spanish peninsula, from the Mozarabic rite but everybody's saying it and nobody will give me any uh, actual sources if i find somewhere i will uh, i will tell you about it i think that that repeated tone uh, does suggest to me that uh, that repeated chorus rather does suggest to me that just like that gloria that we just heard it is cantors singing the verse and everybody singing the chorus but tim you've got a, a version you want to want to share
2: with us yes um I think we're going to start with the Latin version this time no. and, and listen to a little bit of it. And and um, if anybody does have more information on the apparent origins of this uh, hymn, please do send them to us, because we were looking for um, primary sources, but we couldn't find them. But here it is, Antende Domine. Uh-huh. So that was the attended Domine, and um
3: yeah. I thought that was splendid. I think it Thank was wonderful
2: well. yes i I really love these old uh, monastic recordings that you know, with all the kind of gritty male voices sort of I don't know they're just I find them incredibly beautiful um so we also wanted to play an English version of this, and I think it'd be a nice opportunity while we still have the Latin version kind of ringing in our ears to hear how the the English setting falls slightly differently because when you change the language, um, the music inevitably changes as well. So this is one that I found, which has got an interesting sort of harmonized refrain. um, And it was, it's sung by St. David's Compline Choir in Austin, Texas. And um, I think it was recorded about 2008. So let's have a listen to that.
0: and all three people, loving as one
3: I really liked the way that um, in, in an ordinary parish setting, the choir have got some interesting harmonies to deal with there, but they've only got to learn those and sing them once. That again, that call and response nature gives a different texture, which means that those harmonies stand out when you sing them. But you have solo, soloists learning a verse and actually it would be very doable in a lot of a lot of churches. I really like that.
2: Yeah. Um I've got another version here and this is uh does something quite uh quite different and quite interesting um almost a little bit avant-garde uh, so let's have a listen to that year of um of that version and that was um sung by the ora et canta choir um i, I tra-
3: suspect their altos really like that because it actually gave th- those middle harmonies something to do mm. which is, is very often not the case in church music
2: i tried to contact the the arranger of this but um he hasn't responded it, his name is yurag dudak um i don't know if that's uh, it sounds like a sort of Eastern European, maybe Polish name. Um, but well, yeah. if he
3: gets back to us, let's return to it. I think. Yes, a great...
2: and he's got some other very interesting uh, arrangements of liturgical pieces. So, mm. be nice to come back to. You. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this is probably.
3: Can I just pick up one thing from from this? Um, sure. That is, is, there's there's a wonderful set of lines. One good thing about the the Latin hymn. Is that the way that Latin works? Is you can you can get an awful lot into a very very small number of words, and the the line about contrition in verse four, contrito corde pandimus occulta, will show forth the hidden things with a with a um, uh, with a contrite heart. It, I really like that as a model of what Lent, what Lent as a penitential season mm-hmm. is all about. But I just like the the conciseness of the Latin there. I thought it was really really clever.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean I don't my Latin is, is uh very, very small, but that's Well, I'm one of, teaching
3: because 'cause I've got the text in front of me, Tim, so don't worry <laughs> <mind>. about
2: <laughs> But I, I have been told that this is one of the things about Latin is that, you know, just in a few words, there's so much um said in them. My 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 old abbot used to talk about it like a like a zip folder that you get in an email. Yes. You have to kind of unpack it. Um but um I think it would be really lovely to talk a little bit about our experience of of, of chant and how we were introduced to chant. But I well, think, why
3: don't you start then and tell us okay. something about what it was like you know, learning about it for, for the first time.
2: Mm, yes. So this is something we'll obviously come back to at, at yeah. a later stage in, in more depth. But um, the first time I encountered chant was as a student um, studying music at the University of Cape Town. And um, I, there was a redemptorist priest who was studying music with me. Um, I didn't know that he was a redemptorist priest. He, he, just I thought he was just another um, layman like myself. Um, but one day he, he just decided to kind of explain to me the thought behind Gregorian chant, um, because we we're talking about church music. And it was fascinating for me to hear um, that there was a whole theology that was embedded in the very fabric of the way that this music is is set about that the the word um the text dictates the the way in which the music um rises and falls and the speed and um and that it really has this centrality of the word just as you know in the sense that Christ is 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 central that in that um if you can see that the allusion that i'm making there and um i wish i could remember exactly how he described it i mean i've 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 had all kinds of other uh, sort of forays into into chant since then where i could i i could talk about my own um sort of theories about it but that that was very striking to me that the the early church music was not doing what what martin luther did which was to take the kind of um Hub songs of his day and put, um, you know, church uh, choruses to it. Um, it it it's a music that grew up in the heart of the church um, with a theological kind of uh, underpinning that was was driving it. Even the scale is something that is, uh, you know, the the way that it's tuned was supposed to be representing a theological idea.
3: Yeah yeah well for me it was it was um it was much more more a practical level and the the theory is something that i've always been running to catch up with ever since because i'm not a musician by training um and I, I didn't even get i didn't even get an o level which is the was the equivalent in them our days of the, of the gcse that people take now um the options were just not available to me so my my music has always been around practice. I was lucky enough in, to be in a parish in the early '60s where we had a choir that sang compline and benediction, and there was an organ accompaniment to all of that. And then during the the changes of the early '60s, uh, some of the things like the, they were stalwart pieces like the Missa de Angelis, um, which is the one that a lot of a lot of Catholics will will know or recognise. They stayed with me. We still heard them quite often. Um, I rediscovered the Salve Regina, however, which had, you know I hadn't really heard for years and years. When I was at a very boring bit of a choir practice where I wasn't needed, and I was leaf- leafing through a book called Plain Song for Schools and found it, and suddenly remembered it. That was when I was about twelve. It was just before my voice broke. I remember that very painful experience. Um, um, well, it broke during during mass, and that was a, a very that was very interesting. I'll tell you the story another time. But I moved from being a soprano to being an alto, and then from an alto to being a tenor within the space of about an hour, which was quite. <laughs> um, but the Salve Regina was one of those pieces that I, I remember during the practice. I said to the organist, "Do you know this piece?" And he said, "Oh yeah, we all know this piece," and I didn't, but I remembered it from from you know when I was when I was little. Yeah. and it had an appeal simply based originally on nostalgia yes then when we moved into a uh, to north London and I was close to a benedictine parish where they had a chant mass i used to go to that and join in and learnt from don Villibroad everything that I kn- knew at the time about how how chant worked and he was passionate about how we counted and about uh, the the speed that we took things and how expressive it could be mm-hmm. because i think the word being central to the performance of, of chant means that you do need to know and understand the words to a certain extent right and certainly you need to appreciate where they're coming from and what they're doing just like the hymn that we've just been listening to
2: yeah and i mean we we haven't really gotten into some of the more uh kind of elaborate and uh, ornate pieces of chant. um but I, when I've sat down with people and sung these things, I mean, I've had, uh, I remember one time, one of the monks at Mount St. Bernard Abbey, he just kind of sighed and went, wow, this is, this is like let Divina, you know? Because yes, absolutely. That's what it feels like, the, 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 somehow the text is just coming alive, um, but we, we need to press on because we're not going to be able to get through the music we want to get through in this in That's this. true. Episode. Shall, we, shall so. we
3: move now to another Lenten hymn then?
2: Indeed, we must.
3: Um, the hymn that I remember from college times as much as anything, I used to help run a, a chant mass um, where we provided the music uh, at Magdalen, largely for people that weren't part of the Foundation Choir. Um, one of the things that we we used to do was experiment with some of the early music that was available. What I'd like us to look at now, if we could, is the uh, Lent hymn, Ecce Tempus Idoneum, which um, has various... It's it's had an interesting shelf life. It was the Vespers hymn for the Serum Rite, for the English version, if you like, of of the Roman liturgy in the late Middle Ages. And um, it's known there as now is the healing time decreed. Mm -hmm. It's known through that practice and through the English hymnal, which was a great uh, move towards uh, reintroducing chant to an English congregation, largely from an Anglican uh, English congregation but it also comes up because of the recurring interest in early music, particularly English church music. And again, uh, surfaces in about 1939 in a collection of Tudor church music. It alternates the chant, very austere, very uh, plain. Um, I'm not going to, I'm trying to avoid the word plain song, but Mm -hmm. uh, we'll we'll come back to that another time, I'm sure. Um, And what what we've got here is we've got an organ improvisation by Thomas Tallis, Alternating with a uh, with ch- verses of the chant hymn. Shall we just listen to that? Yes, let's do that. <laughs>
2: Be lovely to continue listening to that, but I think for the sake of time we're going to press on yeah um, one of the things I wanted to do is to actually read these these um, English lyrics because I thought that would be quite um, profound and, and powerful you you wanted to say something about them
3: well I, I the thing is I really like the English hymnal translation partly because that's the one that I've sung the most um they English translation deliberately harks back. It tries to sound like it's a, it's a, a, a Tudor hymn itself, which actually it isn't at this point. But there are lines like, who always merciful and good has borne so long our wayward mood, nor cut us off in spare, unsparingly in our so great iniquity. I like the cadence of that. The mm-hmm. translation has been genuinely sympathetic. I think it would be worth us, uh, if, if that's all right, alternating. Yeah, let's and, do it. Uh, you know, it. Off you go then
2: all right now is the healing time decreed for sins of heart and word and deed when we in humble fear record the wrong that we have done the lord
3: who always merciful and good has borne so long our wayward mood nor cut us off unsparingly in our so great iniquity
2: therefore with fasting and with prayer our secret sorrow we declare with all good striving seek his face and lowly-hearted plead for grace
3: friends O lord from every stain help us the gifts of grace to gain till with the angels linked in love joyful we tread thy courts above
2: we pray thee holy trinity one god unchanging unity that we from this our abstinence may reap the fruits of penitence amen Amen. (laughs) well shall we hear an english version of this and i actually really think this is quite lovely um it's um, not that one should be surprised by that, but it's uh, a version that's recorded um, by Priory Records, which have a, a lovely uh, box set, which if anybody wanted to buy it for Radio Maria, I'd be very happy about that. Um, of that's the
3: cool new, in, Tim, That's great.
2: <laughs> of the new English hymnal. So here we have it. was very very beautiful um,
3: I, i'm I'm quite a sucker for those amens I think they're beautiful when they yes. are like that
2: <laughs> me too um,
3: so that was an office hymn that was that that was a hymn for Vespers. I'm just wondering if if we could end by by thinking about the divine office. A lot of people do take up uh, saying saying their office or saying morning and evening prayer from the breviary. For Lent and um, maybe this is a time to, to end with this is that okay
2: yes I think that's a very good idea um, and uh, the divine office is something that we're going to spend a bit of time on um, in the future and talking about how people can start to pray it um, and where to find uh, good settings of things like that um, what sort of what would you recommend uh, people who are looking at praying the divine office during Lent Um yeah.
3: If they're complete starters, if I'm really honest, I think it, it's a communal communal set of prayers. You wouldn't know where to start if you were just given a missal and said, read mass. And I think the same is true of, you know, you see a brief, year, even in the shortened the, the thin versions, and they can be a bit confusing. Um, I've ended up a number of times, in fact, with uh, one of the chaplains from Oxford, Oxford Brookes University, we used to say morning prayer in the Roman Rite. And actually in the end, after a couple of weeks of trying it, I got to just writing it out or printing it out because all the bits that you didn't quite know were going to be there. So the best way of starting the Divine office is to find somewhere on online where they are saying that where they're saying the office. I, I believe the Dominicans in Cambridge um, have a, a live stream of morning and evening prayer. is that right?
2: That's right yeah and we we do it here on Radio Maria so at um, 7 a.m. in the morning we have morning prayer and at 6:30 um, in the evening we have evening prayer. So,
3: yeah. Okay, well, that that's a great thing, isn't it? Similarly, you could take a bit of the office, like Compline. I think we mm-hmm. might we might want to explore Compline um, as, as a as simp- the simplest bit of the office because it doesn't change too much. Yeah, and um, and of course they always finish with the great Marian hymn, usually or during ordinary time. That's the Salve Regina. But we're going to listen to uh, and think about the Ave Regina Caelorum. Is that right?
2: Yes, because this is something that usually comes up. Um, so it it would be sung from candle mass until uh, Easter. So it doesn't actually change during Lent. But I think it's it's one of these things that just has that wonderful beauty that would be great for us to to listen to just now. So here is the simple tone of the Ave Regina Ave Regina and um, we shall hear it now.
0: Ave Regina Celorum, Ave Domino Angelorum. Salve Radix, salve Porta, ex qua mundo lux est orta. Caude Virgo gloriosa super OMNES falle o valde de cora, et pro nobis Christum exorbitant.
2: So there you have it um, and what that is something Please to finish with Yes and very easy to learn if anybody wanted to learn it I was going to mention that um, if you want to find these Marian hymns and sing them, you can get them on a website called um, Gregorian chant- hymns.com and um, they have the Gregorian chant there with a recording of them by either Plusgarden Garden or um, the nuns of St Cecilia which are two just remarkable um, choirs for learning play with which is good fun.
3: And you, you also notice, I think, the way that that played with the, the sonority of the church that was being sung in, and mm. we'll come back to that at some point, because I think that really does add to the, the power of these things.
2: Yeah. Well, um, there were some other hymns that we wanted to talk about um, that are very much in the Lenten uh, canon, but we're going to speak about that next week um, Friday the same time so do ah. do join us for that um, Nick it's been so lovely um, starting this uh, program with you and very much looking forward to having you join next week for the liturgical looking glass
3: Cheers, Tim. Bye everybody
2: Goodbye.
3: Ave
0: Maria Grazia plena Dominus Tecum Benedicta tu in mulieribus, et in benedictus fructus ventris tui,
1: Jesus.